I have a friend named, I'll call him Bill, who likes to tell people that he does not believe in God. Uh, as a matter of fact, he will show you, if you want to, that he has a card that declares that he is a card-carrying member of the American Association, fee, uh, American, American Association of Atheists. He even pays the fee every year. Um, Bob, or Bill feels that religion, in all its forms, in all its expressions, including Christianity, maybe even especially Christianity, is like a virus. It's like a disease that takes over people's minds, especially the feeble-minded and the childish. And once we get over our belief, naive belief that there is a God or gods, the world will be a much better place. I also have a friend that I'll call Jerry. And uh, Jerry has told me he grew up in the church at least for a few years, but he's convinced that every church is filled with hypocrites and every institutional church is an expression of that hypocrisy. And he says that Christians and churches just make rules to control people, to keep them in line, and it's all about power and it's all about keeping people controlled and in their place. Well, the Bible passage you just heard from 1 Peter, at first glance, would be one of those Bible passages that my two friends would balk at and say, see, this makes the problem worse, not better. And they might even go so far as to say, see, this is why my morality is better than your Christian morality. Uh, Take a look at this passage with me on page 10 in your bulletins. Verse 13, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. What about a government that's corrupt? What about a government that needs to change? Is, does Christianity just prop up the status quo? Verse 18, servants, be subject to your masters with all respect. Does Christianity, does the Bible advocate slavery, justify slavery, advocate slavery? And if so, how can we trust it on other things like sexuality or salvation? These are the kinds of questions people are asking in our culture. Chapter 3, verse 1, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. And chapter, chapter 3, verse 7, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. Does Christianity, does the Bible support the suppression, the oppression of women? This is not an easy passage. And as I said in the first service, and I'll say it again, I will voice my concerns here, because I was not in the planning meeting when Bishop Stewart and Father Kevin divvied up the passages for 1 Peter. (laughs) And I imagine the conversation went something like this. Wow, tough passage. Hey, we got Woodley on staff now. Let's give it to the new guy. Let's teach him a thing or two about submission, okay? And that is how I came to preach on this passage. Actually, Bishop Stewart told me that's not the way it really went down. But, um, and actually, I want to say... This is, I think this is a liberating passage. I think this is a part of the Bible that leads to personal 
and social transformation. But it, it's so counterintuitive to the way many of us have been raised in this culture. It, it, at first glance, it, or maybe at a deeper glance, it goes against the grain of maybe some of the values some of us hold and cherish. So it needs some unpacking. Um, as we know, this, this, this passage wasn't originally written to us and to our culture. It was written to a culture from 2,000 years ago, and it's really important to get that context down before we start putting our own assumptions, our own cultural assumptions. And, you, and, and we always got to be careful when we put our cultural assumptions on another culture because a hundred years from now, people are going to be putting their cultural assumptions on us. And what will they say about us? So what goes around comes around when we start bashing people that lived in the past. But we have to understand the cultural context first. And what was that context? Well, First Peter was written by a spiritual leader named Peter, who uh, wrote to a bunch of Christians scattered throughout a region that we know today as Turkey. And many of these believers, these followers of Christ, the, most of them were not influential people. Most of them, as a matter of fact, were people that were marginalized. Most of them were people that were being persecuted. Most of them were people that the powerful people of that culture held in suspicion. So how were these people going to respond? How were these Christians going to respond when they are the targets of suspicion and persecution and indifference and mockery? Well, like us, there's basically two human reactions that we have. We either, there's fight or there's flight. I'm going to call it, we either bail or we rail. We bail out of this culture. We retreat behind our fortress. We retreat behind our stained glass, so to speak. We disengage from culture. And we try to create a subculture where we don't have to have anything to do with people out there that don't think like us or don't believe like us. That's how you bail. But then you can also rail. You can rail against the evils in the culture. You can rail against the government. You can rail against this and that. Those are basically the two options that we have. And Peter's going to say, don't bail, don't rail. I want to give you a third way. It's the way of Jesus. It's the way of following Jesus' example. It's the way of walking the path of the cross. And notice what he says in verse 12, because this is really, that verse unlocks the whole text that we're looking at, and everything flows from verse 12. Verse 12 says this, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles, those, those who don't know Christ, honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. In other words, live your life among people. Don't disengage, don't bail, don't rail, but live your life among such people that, and, and we could put it this way, that you surprise people Suspicious people, hostile people, indifferent people, that you surprise them with a taste of God's beautiful goodness. In other words, we heard from Bishop Stewart last week, occupy. This week, the word is engage. Engage people. Don't retreat. Don't rail. Engage them with love and surprise them with a taste of Christ's beautiful goodness. That is the principle that gets played out in what follows in the rest of this passage that we read. And it's pretty easy to outline because it goes like this. Because what Peter does is he gives a case study or an example. 
And then he gives another case study, another example of how you apply this. And then he has this little interlude, okay, which we'll get to. And then he has a third case study, a third example. And so he walks through these. The first case study is about our relationship with the government. We'll call this those worthless politicians. So you don't like the government. You think President Obama is of the devil. Or you think it's the Republicans' fault because they are blocking and circumventing him at every turn. You think the leaders of our state are hopelessly corrupt. And if anything, you could just get out of here. You fantasize about getting out of here. What do you do as a Christian? You bail, you disengage, or you rail. You listen to angry, one-sided talk radio and feed your anger. Let it just rise up more and more. Well, here's a third option. Verse 13. Be subject or submit, which literally means to live under. For the Lord's sake, to every human institution whether it be to the governor as supreme or the governor as sent by uh, the emperor supreme or to governors as sent by him. That pretty much sums up our entire system of government. All three branches, local, federal. Submit. Live under their authority. Now, Peter is not talking about some type of Nazi-like regime. He's not talking about something like communist Russia, where it was the law that you were expected, you were demanded, commanded to snitch on your neighbors, even your parents, even your children, if they were following Christ. You know, the same Peter that wrote this letter said earlier in the Bible at one point, he said, we must obey God rather than men. So there is a point where it comes to that. But that's not the case study that Peter is talking about here. That would be a different case study. You see, these case studies aren't like, they don't cover every facet. They're, They're fairly specific, and yet they have application to us. It's written to people like us who say, the government is hopelessly corrupt. I can't do any good here. My hands are tied because of what's happening in Washington, D.C., Or what's happening in Chicago? Or what's happening at City Hall? I can't do any good. And Peter says in verse 15, this revolutionary, freeing, liberating verse, he says, for this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. And he goes on in verse 16, he says, live as people who are free. Don't be enslaved to your despair. Don't be enslaved to your passivity. In a sense... You're going to submit to something. As Bob Dylan sang, you've got to serve somebody. It may be the devil. It may be the Lord. Well, in terms of 1 Peter, you've got to submit to something. It may be your despair. It may be your passivity or maybe your chronic negativity and anger and rage. Or you could submit to the Lord and you could submit to human institutions. He says, verse 17, honor everyone. Live the bro- love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. One translation of that says, treat everyone you meet with respect and dignity. I love that. You see, the government can't stop you from doing that. The government can't stop us as a church from doing that. 
We are free to treat people with dignity so that even skeptical people will say, I still don't like your beliefs. I don't really like your politics either. But I can't argue with your life. I can't argue with the way you treat people with dignity, even your enemies. You know, to me, a beautiful example of this was uh, one of the most profound essays, I think, in American history in the, last, in the, in the 20th century. It was a Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King's letter called Letter from a Birmingham Jail. And here's the story behind that letter, and I don't know if you've ever read it, but I read it for the first time this week, not just little snippets and quotes, but the entire letter, and read the context behind the letter. On April 16, 1963, Dr. King was arrested. It was his 13th arrest. He was thrown into solitary confinement in a jail in Birmingham. And on scraps of paper, without any books, without any notes, without any internet resources, he wrote this letter. Now, Dr. King, like all of us, is a complicated man. He had his issues. But on this one, he nailed it. And we can understand why our African-American friends think of him as such an incredible hero to them and leader to them. And basically what he said in this letter is he, he rejected two unacceptable options. The first was what he called the do-nothingism of the complacent. And the second is what he called the hatred and despair of the black radicals. That is, Dr. King said, I'm not going to bail and I'm not going to rail. Instead, he chose the path of holy submission. Now, I want us to see what that looked like because it was not passivity. It was not cowering. It was not cringing. It was not passive-aggressive. He said, first of all, that he's a son of the church. He didn't bail on the church. He loved the church. And he said, with tears of love for the church, he said, I call upon the church to stop hiding behind what he called the anesthetizing security of stained-glass windows. And basically his message was, if I can interpret it and summarize it as best as I can, is don't wait for the politicians to get on board with racial justice. Don't wait for them to get it all right, because they may never get it all right. But he said, now is the time to do good. Now is the time to resist evil. You see, that kind of holy submission leads to creativity and energy. And here's what he said. He said, I will never use violence. He said, I will never use immoral means for a moral cause. But he said, and I quote, I have not said to my people, get rid of your discontent. Rather, I've tried to say that this normal and healthy discontent can be channeled into the creative outlook, outlet of nonviolent direct action. You see what holy submission leads to? Respect, dignity, and yet this channeling into creative outlet for activity. That's the kind of courageous, creative submission that I think this passage calls for. It's positive, it's constructive, and as Peter says, it pleases the Lord. So case study number one, how are you doing with the government? How am I doing with the government? Do I want to bail, check out, refuse to vote, refuse to get involved? I mean, we're in a democracy. 
people, Christians in Peter's day didn't have a democracy. They couldn't vote out the emperor every four years. We have that privilege. But how do we get involved? Do we rail? Or do we work within, respect the government, pray for President Obama, pray for our leaders in Washington, D.C., pray for our leaders in this state, pray for our leaders locally? How are we offering people a surprising taste of Christ's goodness? Case study number two is what I'm going to call a toxic work environment or a toxic labor arrangement. Verse 18, servants, be subject to your masters with all respect. Now, we have to unpack a little bit what slavery looked like for people of Peter's day because it's a really important issue because, again, people say, Well, if the Bible advocates slavery, then why should I really trust it on other things? Well, slavery was not a great arrangement. But in Peter's day, it was very different than what we have experienced, what we maybe perpetrated, inflicted on people in this country through the African-American slave trade. Let me tell you about a couple things about slavery in Peter's days. Again, it wasn't a great arrangement. But, first of all, it was not based on race or color. It had nothing to do with that. Secondly, it was often voluntary because it was usually the best way to get a living and to have financial security. Now, again, we can look back on on our day and we can criticize the way we did it, but remember, 100 years from now, people will be doing that to us. So it was a voluntary, it provided a stable income, and by the time people turn 30, most people become free. So really this is more like indentured servanthood. Slaves could own property. Slaves could be employed in important jobs, like accountants and sea captains. So it's not near the same as what we have experienced in our country. It's not endorsing an oppressive labor management arrangement. Peter's simply saying, look, this is what it is for now. You're living in this system. How can you make the best of this system? And he says, submit to that arrangement. And, but don't submit passively. Submit so that you can do good. A creative, channel it into a creative outlet. I don't think it's too much of a stretch to apply it to our work arrangements today. Let's say your job isn't perfect. Let's say you're not in your sweet spot. Let's say your boss is a jerk. Let's say the company you work for is shady. I'm not talking about some kind of illegal activity or some kind of explicitly unchristian activity. That would be another case study. But what do you do? How do you respond to that? Do you bail? Do you rail? Do you do shoddy work? That's kind of a passive, aggressive way of bailing. Do you badmouth your boss behind your back? Do you steal office supplies? I mean, they're not paying me enough, so I'm going to take some for myself. Well, Peter says there's a third way in verse 20. And he says again, in that imperfect situation, do good. Find ways to do good. And he says, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. 
Nobody else may notice, but it's a gracious thing in the sight of God. Again, you could say, oh, my hands are tied here. I can't do any good here. It's the company. It's my boss. It's my job. And Peter says, no, that's submitting to passivity. That's submitting to despair. Submit to the Lord in that situation. Submit to your boss and do good. Third case study, and the most interesting. Chapter 3, verse 1. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. I just want to admit up front, this passage has been used, a distorted view of this passage has been used to hurt a lot of people. What views of what I would call unholy submission. Views that primarily force women into an unholy submission. Or that women choose for themselves because maybe that's the only option they have. I was raised as a Christian in that kind of environment, which I would call a misogynistic church culture. And it was, I've had to do a lot of unlearning in my life and a lot of repenting of those attitudes. But this is talking about a, first of all, it's a distortion of the Bible's teaching of the inherent dignity of the human person as male and female made in the image of God from Genesis 1. That kind of misogynistic teaching is a distortion of that. It's a distortion of the clear example of Jesus who loved and honored both male and female. And it's a distortion of what this passage clearly says in chapter 3, verse 7, where it says, tells husbands to honor their wives as joint heirs with you of the grace of life. In other words, this radical teaching, it's not like you're the husband, you're the primary heir, and then your wife is the second in line as the heir. No, it's you are joint heirs of the grace of the new life of Jesus. A radical statement. How do we live that out? Again, Peter was addressing a specific situation. And in verse 1, we find that he's talking to Christian women who are married to husbands who do not obey the word. In other words, they're not Christians. So how are they going to live in this imperfect marriage where the wife is a believer and the husband is not? And Peter says, again, don't rail, don't bail, but stay in that situation Submit to your husband and do good. He says, work on, basically he says, work on yourself, is basically what he says. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or clothing you wear. And some Christian churches have taken that to mean blanket statements so that women cannot braid their hair. Women should not wear any gold jewelry. Um, Women should not wear any fancy clothes. So I don't know how many, if that's the interpretation, there'd be a lot of women in violation right now, okay? But that's not what Peter's saying. He's saying, this is, 
He's saying, work on yourself. Work on your inner beauty. Don't make your non-Christian husband your personal project. Work on yourself. Work on your inner beauty, the imperishable beauty of a quiet and gentle spirit. In God's sight, this is very precious. And then he uses Sarah as an example. Now, we have to understand, if you read the book of Genesis... Sarah was no doormat. And actually, Abraham was a little, not a little, sometimes he was really afraid of Sarah, okay? Sarah had power, as we would say, in the relationship. In a way, they were living this joint heirness that we are called to. And yet, Sarah lovingly submitted to Abraham. Now notice, again, this is not a cringing fawning kind of submission that leads to passivity and despair and fear. Peter says, do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Actually, he's calling these women who are supposed to develop a quiet and gentle spirit, he's calling them to a life of strength and courage as well. Because in Peter's day, again, this is another context thing, in Peter's day, Most of the women just adopted the religion of their husband. So he's saying, I don't want you to do that. I want you to go against culture. I want you to go against probably your family. I want you to go maybe against your in-law's family. And I'm asking you to follow Christ without fear. I'm not asking you to adopt your husband's religion. That takes courage. That takes strength. And then in verse 7, in case Peter has some Christian husband listening in, he adds a word to them in verse 7. And it's not a lot, but what he says I think is pretty potent. He says, live with your wives in an understanding way or in a considerate way. You know, as I study this passage, I think Peter is really asking the husbands to treat their wives with gentleness just as he asked the wives to treat their husbands with gentleness. It's gentleness, considerate, being considerate. Isn't that a lot like being gentle? Isn't that kind of a synonym for being gentle? So he's basically saying the same thing. And then he says, so that your, hair, your, your, your prayers may not be hindered. So that your, you could hinder your hair too, Okay. So that your prayers may not be hindered. In other words, God says, if you don't treat your wife with gentleness, if you treat your wife with violence or coercion or manipulation or exert your physical force on her, God is going to interrupt your life. God will put a roadblock in your life. It's not only a roadblock of judgment, but it could also be a roadblock of mercy to give the husband a new start as well. Now, at this point, you might be thinking, wow, I really got to be a good person. If I'm going to, like, win people over, surprise people with Christ's beautiful goodness, I really got to get my act together. That's why the interlude that Peter gives is so important for us to understand, and the interlude is so crucial Look at verse 24 and 25. Talking about Christ, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree 
that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were strained like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. See, if we engage people that don't follow Christ as skeptical, hostile, if we engage them with like, hey, I just want you to look at me. Listen to my story. I'm a really good person. I'm a really amazing person. Look at all the good things I do. I mean, I work with the poor. I follow Jesus, blah, 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 blah. And if we do that, we're going to wind up sounding really self-righteous, really boring, and are not going to attract anybody to Christ. Our story is not, I'm better than you. That's not our story. It's up to God to convince people of that. But our story is, I'm a sinner. I still have wounds. I have brokenness. I have baggage. I have wandered away. I'm like a sheep that has strayed, and I keep straying. But my story is a story of mercy. And Christ had mercy on me, and he still has mercy on me. And I live and breathe that every day. And any good that I do flows from him, his mercy that has been shown in me. It's a story of mercy. That's why the interlude is so important. So let me ask the question, the question in your bulletin on page 13. It's how can we, how can you surprise a suspicious world with the beautiful goodness of Christ? Let me start with the we. And let me tell you a story. A couple months ago, or about a year ago, there was a murder in Aurora. And what was newsworthy about that was that it was the first murder in Aurora in 13 months. Now, Aurora was becoming known in the early 2000s, was becoming known as like a little Chicago in terms of murders. There were 26 murders in 2002 in Aurora. What changed? How did that get so... What happened in Aurora? Well, there's a lot of things, including the police force, the mayor, but one of the powerful things that happened in Aurora was the churches. The churches banded together, and it started with two pastors, two pastors from different churches, different denominations, who got together, and every time there was a murder in Aurora, they would get together and they would go to the spot, the ground, where the murder was committed, and they would have a worship service on that spot on that ground where the blood was shed. They would lament, and they would worship, and they would reclaim that ground, that the soil, the turf, the sidewalk, where the blood was shed, and give it back to God. Now, a secular newspaper caught hold of this story and wrote up this story. That's how we heard of it. Now, that to me, that is surprising. That surprises people with God's, a beauty of God's goodness. How do we do that in Wheaton? There's a lot of ways to do that, but one of the things that I'm excited about at our church, one of the things that we do that I'm excited about, and we don't do it perfectly, we grow a lot more in this, but one of our commitments is we love unborn children. We believe in what's called the sanctity of life, but we also love and honor Women who find themselves in really difficult pregnancies, we want to walk beside them. And not only that, but we have a ministry called Replanted that works with adopting children, adopting orphans. 
and working, helping and train and equip parents that want to go into that ministry. And not only that, but we have people working with refugees and immigrants. Now, again, we don't do any of these perfectly. We have room to grow. But to me, I think that's surprising. When I tell my friend Bill about that and what's going on at our church, he's like, hmm, okay, one point for you, okay? Because that surprises him. Second question is, how can you, how can you surprise a suspicious world with the beautiful goodness of Christ? You have a sphere of influence. You have people around you. Pray. Think about what is your, the ground where you stand? Who are the people you interact with? Maybe they're suspicious. Maybe they're indifferent. Maybe they're hostile. How is God calling you to surprise them? Give them a surprise a surprising taste of the beautiful goodness of Christ. Amen.